Welcome to Flock Out, the official podcast of Beyond the Flock Media, where company owner Chris Dolan and media professional Christina Yanata engage in dialogues about the creative process, their love of films, and making your entrepreneurial ambitions a reality. Often we are joined by guests who consist of both clients of Beyond the Flock Media's services as well as collaborators who have worked with Chris or Christina. The conversation is free-flowing, starting with an exploration of the guests' history and inspirations, and then we flock out to who knows where. Today's guest is John Rogers, retired captain of Plymouth Police Department. As a distinguished member of local law enforcement with well over 30 years of committed service, John served as a detective, narcotics investigator, training supervisor, and detective unit commander. He received his promotion to captain in 2008, where he became second in command of the department. John was instrumental in the inception of the Plymouth County Outreach, also known as PCO, where he currently serves as the program coordinator for the PCO and the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative Hub, a team-based task force of law enforcement and healthcare professionals who organize to provide behavioral health services to residents of Plymouth County. We are obliged and honored to welcome John Rogers to the show. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Thank you, Christine. Yourself? Hi, Chris. So, um, first question, uh, 30 years of service, that's pretty impressive. So, was this something that you always wanted to do? Um, How did you get to where you are today? Did anything shift or change while you were growing up in terms of what you wanted to do? What's your story on that? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I said, growing up, I, I really wasn't sure uh, of, you know, what I really wanted to do. Um, I started working at an early age. I was working, worked at a, a, my local uh, McDonald's. I grew up in the town of Rockland. And I really got into that. I really, I, I liked the, the work. It was, it was really kind of a, um, McDonald's was a, was a really good structure for a young person to learn, you know, about work ethic and things like that. They, they had a lot of uh, is a good grounding um, mechanism for you know people for a first job. It was I, I found it very helpful, and uh, and gave, I, I think it gave me a good base for how I wanted to you know be a, be a professional. And quite frankly, I, I really thought I was going to go into uh, hotel and restaurant management mm. uh, when I got out of high school. I um, I, I, in, I enrolled at uh, Massachusetts Community College at the time. Uh, I had gotten a bachelor's degree in business administration, and then I uh, transferred to Northeastern University and continued in the business program up there. And But what had happened, um, funny enough, uh, coincidentally enough, was, you know, when I worked at McDonald's, um, we used to, on Friday nights, you know, McDonald's was a big hangout. It was, you know, after, you know, after basketball games, football games, things like that on Friday and Saturday nights was always very busy. And we used to have um, local police officers do security details there. And I became, I came to know the officers very well. And uh, a lot of them kind of pointed me in the direction of becoming an auxiliary police officer in the town of Rockland, which is what I did. And um, I started doing that and I, you know, it was, um, it was an unpaid position. Uh, All we really did was provide support to the, to the uh, regular officers that were on duty. Um, we, um, you know, we patrolled in a mock unit. We were in uniform, we carried weapons. 
but again, we just kind of provided support, you know, in the way of directing traffic, you know, doing security checks around the town that, you know, they weren't able to do if they were tied up on calls for service. And um, it kind of really redirected um, my, uh, my, my career goals uh, at that particular point where I wanted to become a police officer. So, um, you know, I took the uh, police exam. Um, it's, it's the uh, statewide uh, civil service exam. And um, a after a few years, I was able to get on uh, the Rockland Police Department as what they call the permanent intermittent, which means you were a, a regular patrol officer, but you only worked on a part-time basis. And finally, an alternative opened up where I was able to uh, transfer my intermittent status to the Plymouth Police Department. And it, quite frankly, it was the best move, best move I had ever, yeah, best move I had ever made because mm -hmm. it was a large community. Um, it was a large department. There were, um, you know, many um, opportunities available to you uh, in a larger department. And uh, I, um, it, it just kind of became my new home. And so after my first year or so, uh, as a, um, I worked as a seasonal officer the summer of 1985, and then I was appointed full-time in September of 85, and I started the academy in uh, January of 86. And um, that, was, um, that, was a, that was the beginning for me as far as uh, a career in law enforcement. Was, was there even, um, I guess, even earlier um, inspiration? Um, you know, when, even when you were a small child, did, when you saw like police on TV or anything, did um, that have any influence on you? Yeah, like, I always, I always liked police shows and, yeah. uh, and things like that. And, and the other thing is my family basically was a um, public, public service-oriented family. Again, my father okay. was a school superintendent. I had an uncle that was a firefighter in Boston. I had an aunt that was a police officer um, in another community. And um, so it was, I was kind of, in, in one respect or another, I was kind of guided that way. And it's, um, it seems like such a wide field, too. I mean, um, when you really got into it, uh, Christina was reading off, you know, your history. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different positions you seem to assume throughout your career. Um, and I think you, you focused more as a detective um, in terms of your work. And um, I, I guess, um, what, what, is, what is that, the role of detective? What does that encompass and what drew you down that path? Well, the detective unit was uh, is is a, a, again a specialized unit within the department that does more detailed investigations than the uniform patrol officer would do. Um, again, you know, the uniform patrol officer responds to every call for service, whether it be a um, you know a larceny or you know a, a motor vehicle accident or something like that. But in a lot of cases, a lot of these things need to be further investigated, which is kind of out, works outside of the purview of what the patrol officer can do on a regular shift. Um, don't get me wrong, there are smaller departments within Plymouth County that a patrol officer is required to do uh, much more, even some investigative work. But Plymouth being a large department, we had a, a, a unit of um, six detectives uh, when I be in, uh, joined the unit. And it involved detailed, more detailed investigation, whether it be, you know, working with banks to, uh, you know, to uh, clear up bank fraud, um, you know, our crime scene processing, one of the things we did was we, we did process some of our crime scenes, which we, we take photographs, we collect evidence, we dust for fingerprints, things like that, which I was very, um, very interested in. Um, I, I, I always try to be creative uh, in the way I, you know, process a scene. If I, you know, if I, if I, if I met a particular challenge, I try to find some way to overcome it. Um, 
and uh, it was it was great additional training. You got to work on a lot of interesting cases. You got to work with other agencies, whether it be other law, other municipal law enforcement, state police, FBI, other federal agencies, and things like that. And um, you you develop a, a great network of contacts and individuals that you know that you you work very well with. And I I always enjoyed that part of the job. You know, there's a few other things that stand out during my time as a detective. Um, again, I was a narcotics um, investigator for a while as well and, and back then it was uh, the narcotics investigation wasn't a, a, a full-time assignment so to speak it was we what we did myself and my partner we squeezed it in in the midst of other investigations uh, because we didn't have a, uh, a full-time narcotics unit at the time so uh, it kind of it wasn't it really wasn't something I was looking to do it just kind of came that way and, you know, wanting to advance and, um, you know, and, de and develop in my career, I felt it was a, um, a good opportunity for me to get, you know, more experience and, and be, you know, a more well-rounded police officer when it came to doing investigative work. I'm actually curious to ask you this because, I mean, you said you had, you know, seen police on TV when you were really young. And then growing up, obviously, through the years, there's been a lot of, um, you know, police shows, shows about detectives, um, shows up about, you know, narcotics investigation. Um, I, I'm just curious about representation. Do you feel like the, the media <laughs> um, represents the job well mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, is kind of, you know, letting the public know, like, what these people's lives are really like? I, I, guess, I guess it depends on what the purpose of the, um, the media is at the time. Okay. Um, I mean, if they if they're you know if they have a particular goal or function in what they're doing as far as uh, looking at police work, I think you know sometimes they they do represent it well. Um, sometimes you know sometimes it gets misrepresented because you know it, things get twisted or slanted and things of that nature. You know, given the current circumstances with the um, call for police reform, um, I think a lot of things you know get get looked at differently um, you know there's a, we still get a lot of support from the from the general public as far as uh, law enforcement goes um, you know a lot of people look at us differently you know and, and one of the things is you know obviously if, if one police officer makes a bad mistake or uses poor judgment that reflects poorly on every police officer that does the job and you know, um, you know, there's been a lot of issues that have happened over the years, um, in you know, in the last you know, eight to ten years. Ferguson, Missouri, was one that comes to mind. You know, most immediate, uh, most immediate from you know, several years back. Um, then there are other issues with the uh, the issue in Minnesota with George Floyd, um, and then the um, the situation with the uh, the paramedic that was um, in uh, killed in uh, Kentucky. And then the other individual that was shot by police in Atlanta. Those are kind of your, kind of four hot buttons, you know. Um, and, and unfortunately, things pop up every day. And every time a police officer, you know, uses deadly force, this particularly now, it's going to really be scrutinized. And um, and you know, from my perspective, and uh, you know, a lot of people tell me, "Gee, you're glad you retired now that all this is going on." And, and quite frankly, I'm really not. Uh, because um, the issue is, is I really don't like the way, you know, police officers are being perceived. Um, we're all being, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's said to be uh, a systemic problem. Um, it says, you know, it says that we're all racist. 
and you know I don't I don't see it that way. Um, mm -hmm. It's and it's not that way. It's it's really not. I mean, you know, you you'll find out. You know, as things go on, you know, you'll probably find out with the incident in Minnesota that you know this officer probably had some history that you know should have led people or you know command staff in that department to look at him sooner um, for the way he did his job, the way he behaved, and things like that. Um, you know, you may see that in um, in uh, in the other situations as well. Uh, but you know, when when it comes to certain things, it's it's one of these situations where you know um, when someone displays deadly force against a police officer, or someone else, um, if the officer doesn't react properly, someone could get hurt or killed, and it, it's it's not it's not an easy decision, not at all. Um, and it's it it can be you know it's going to get looked at. And like you said, do I believe there needs to be police reform? Absolutely. There really does. I mean, we really have to look at the way we do things. People have to be treated equally and fairly. Um, doesn't this, despite their race, or their religion or anything of that nature, everyone needs to be treated the same. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think we need to move that way without going so far in reverse that we, we lose some of these things we work so hard to get. And uh, like I said, every time something goes wrong, um, you know, we have to rehabilitate our relationship with the public. And, and that's, that's important. You know, relationships are key uh, from my perspective. I've always found that relationships are, 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 are very valuable when it comes to police officers dealing with the public. And, and one of the things I used to like to do is that they, when given the opportunities was I enjoyed going to groups you know, whether going to schools or going to community groups or neighborhood watch groups and be able to speak to people and talk to people about how police do their work and how we can work together to, you know, to benefit everybody. And those are some of the, the, the best things I enjoy doing, um, you know, during my time with the police department. Oh, and um, I think this kind of uh, leads me into a, another kind of discussion um, on our way to kind of discussing the PCO. Um, you know, when, when you're working as a narcotics investigator, or even as, I mean, as, an, as a patrolman, you probably came across people with um, substance use disorder. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of interested in talking a little bit about stigma, because I, I think it kind of relates to what we were just talking about, you know, police. Um, I think there's a kind of stigmatized view that, um, you know, the world is kind of dealing with right now in terms of policing. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting because you went down this road that was kind of about, um, you know, upending the stigma surrounding uh, people with substance use disorder. The whole idea that, you know, the way to solve this problem with these people out on the streets committing crimes because um, they have a need, they're having an, an addiction um, is, you know, to put them in, you know, to put them in jail. But um, because, you know, that's the way um, it had always been done, more or less. Um, but the PCO... Plymouth County Outreach seems to have kind of, you know, upended that and kind of change, you know, work to really change this stigma um, around uh, people with substance use disorder, maybe, maybe humanizing them a little bit more. Um, can you speak about, you know, your own experiences as a police officer? Um, did, did you notice, um, I mean, did you have that perception that, you know, drug addicts were evil or bad or had to be thrown into prison? Did you notice a change in yourself in terms of your perception um, towards these people over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like I said, when I, was in, when I was a narcotics investigator, very rarely did we have overdoses. 
on a scale at which we see them today. I mean, maybe maybe one, two, maybe three a year. And, um, you know, the situation was, you know, and, and back then it was primarily people, you know, shooting heroin and a combination of other drugs that would that lead to these overdoses. And quite frankly, Chris, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I, I was of the opinion that if someone is crazy enough to shoot poison into their arm, you know, they kind of get what they deserve. Mm -hmm. But as things changed, you know, as, as you know, we, we started like in the, um, you know, 2010 to 2015, we were starting to see a significant increase in overdoses and things like that. And you start seeing, you know, people that, you know, anybody, any walk of life is, um, is suffering from some type of uh, substance use disorder. And it's like, well, why is that? And um, towards the end of 2015, we, you know, we were seeing in Plymouth, we were seeing a significant increase in opioid overdoses. And it was a situation where we, we really had to get involved. And um, back then, what, you know, um, at the time, Chief Mike Botiri um, started to uh, work with other agencies, uh, support groups, things like that. Beth Israel, uh, Deaconess Hospital at the time, um, Grosnell Treatment Center, High Point Treatment Center, um, all of these people to try to address the issue of this rise in overdoses due to opioid addiction. And, you know, it wasn't until we had, um, I think it was a series of five overdose fatalities at the end of 2015, and I had gone to a vigil for each one of these people over a two-week time and met the families and found out more about these people and found that this addiction or the substance use disorder that they developed was not due to recreational use of drugs through its normal escalation, marijuana, cocaine, heroin. I mean, that was usually what the, um, how the escalation went. It was primarily because they had been they had um, suffered an injury, had been in an accident, had some kind of surgery, an illness or something that they required that they take or be prescribed opioid pain-based medication. And what happened was is that at the time, oxycodone or oxycontin, there's a few different variations of it, um, you know, was on the market and it was found to be very, very addictive. And, you know, when I, when I learned more about these people, it, it flipped the switch for me. I mean, it, it, just, it just turned it around completely because it was no longer a crime to, be a, to have some kind of substance use disorder. Um, it now it was an illness. It was a sickness. And it, it had to be handled differently. And um, the problem is, though, is because of the stigma, people weren't getting the treatment or weren't being driven to where they needed to be driven to get the proper long-term treatment they needed to overcome their addiction or their substance use disorder. I keep saying that because a lot of the terminology over the last five or six years has kind of changed. I mean, we're going from addiction to substance use disorder and things of that nature. So I'll probably say these things differently a couple of times, so I apologize. But um, because that's, that's where the stigma comes in, you know, the stigma comes in based on these catchphrases, addiction, um, you know, junkie, um, addict, things of that nature, which is not the case anymore. It's a situation where people have legitimately become addicted to, uh, again, become addicted to medication 
because they experienced and they had a tooth pulled. They had a knee injury. They twisted their ankle. They broke a leg. Something like that, you know. Um, it, and it and it it changed it. And you know, it changed it for me. And the other thing is, I think it changed it for a lot of officers over the years because this became such a problem that I don't think there's anybody they can't. If you, if you really think about the people you know, whether it be family, friends, or otherwise, that someone has you, someone in your family, or someone close to you has not been affected by the substance use disorder um, issue that we've been living with now for, you know, for years. And again, um, you know, I, again, I want to mention, you know, Chief Mike Votieri because he was, you know, he was, you know, one of the leaders countywide. This is where law enforcement goes as well. Um, I being, you know, his second in command, you know, I was, you know, heavily involved in the development of the program. And um, there are other people that really, um, you know, were key players in this as well. And basically what it was, what we determined was as far as our, as our PCO program for, uh, again, for dealing with overdoses was that we needed to get back out to see these people within 12 to 24 hours with either a clinician or a recovery coach to try to engage these people, to connect them with resources so that they can get some kind of long-term recovery treatment. And um, we, you know, that, you know, we, we, were, we were hesitant, I'll tell you right off the bat, we were hesitant, you know, what kind of responses we were gonna get. Were people gonna slam the door in our face? People gonna tell us to go away or anything like that? And um, that wasn't the case. To this day, to this day, countywide, no one has refused us at the door. Over a period of time, we developed, uh, we trained people that were in recovery themselves to be recovery coaches. And now all of our recovery coaches that work through our PCO that go out on our follow-ups are people that are in recovery themselves. And uh, it makes it a little easier, uh, you know, for the, to make the connection with these people. And um, so it's, it's worked very well. A um, couple other things that we've also did was we found that, um, um, that we would get calls from people saying, well, gee, my, my, um, my husband, my daughter, my son, um, you know, my cousin, they, they have an addiction problem. Do they have to wait to overdose to get your services? And we found, we, you know, we determined, no, that was not going to be the case. And basically what we do is if someone called, we, we, would, we would stop the same process. We would get out there before the overdose and, uh, and, and try to get them the services they need. Um, the, the one thing we did find initially was that we um, were having problems with um, people that overdosed in Plymouth but did not live, live in Plymouth. They live in a neighboring community, and we weren't able to send one of our officers over to do this follow-up. So this is where the concept of moving it countywide developed. And uh, we initially we did that uh, through uh, uh, a, another grant, uh, a different coalition that involved the towns of Plymouth, Middleborough, and Carver. And then eventually it expanded beyond that. And uh, you know, eventually we were able to do this in all 27 communities uh, throughout Plymouth County. Every police chief signed on. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, no question that um, you know that this was not going to, you know, be something that we had to, you know, beg people to be part of. They knew they had to do it. And um, so eventually, you know, every community signed on. Um, eventually, as things developed, we found that. Um, Law enforcement, police officers would be out uh, distributing, uh, would be administering NACAN in the field uh, as well. That was something that, you know, again, that was developed as part of this program. 
and you know we did a, we did a lot of other things as well uh, too um, as far as uh, we had uh, neighborhood drop-in centers is there anything else like this within either the state or even nationwide that other police departments are doing or implementing or anything like that? Or is this really like the first thing that's happening with this? Well, I, I, there are other programs that are, you know, going on throughout the country that are, uh, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, initially there was a, a program that started up in the uh, city of uh, the town of Gloucester uh, prior to PCO where, you know, instead of arresting people for being in possession of drugs, they would get them, you know, try to connect them with treatment, things like that. And similar programs are, are popping up all over the country, you know, similar, some likes PCO and, and others that are, um, you know, a, a little different. You know, it, and again, it, it also depends on where you are in the country, what you have available for resources, things like that, as, as to what you can actually do. Um, so, I mean, there are many programs, and we, we partner with a organization called PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. It's a, it's a nonprofit, it's a nationwide group that works with law enforcement agencies and partners with law enforcement agencies to develop, um, you know, programs to deal with substance use disorder. And it's, um, you know, they've, they've been very successful and, you know, every day they're, they're bringing more people into the, uh, into programs and helping them develop programs and things of that nature. We've, we've done some video work together, um, John. Yep. And, um, you know, it's interesting because in doing that work, I got to actually see how this, this happens. Um, got mm -hmm. to see the hub. Um, yeah. You know, it's an, um, you guys aren't doing in-person meetings. You're, you're going online on Zoom. And, um, you know, I'll see like, you know, 16 or 20 people online uh, mm -hmm. conversing. You know, yeah. I, got, I got to see that kind of side of it. Um, it's interesting during COVID, I mean, you said something that I, you know, really struck me. It's like, I don't want anyone to fall through the cracks. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to anyway, like regardless sure. if we're in COVID, but it's, mm -hmm. it's something about COVID maybe has increased the impetus um, to focus on that. I mean, can yep. you speak a little bit to how COVID has either made it more challenging for PCO or what, what has it altered for you? Back at the beginning of 2019, I had just retired and I had taken a position as the uh, program coordinator for PCO substance use disorder. But we were seeing issues with mental health. We we're seeing a lot of dual diagnosis issues with substance use disorder and mental health disorders, um, you know, in the same people. And we felt that mental health had to be something that we really had to address. So um, PCO, uh, along with Beth Israel, Deaconess Hospital, and PARI, partnered together to apply for, and we received a grant of over $900,000 from South Shore Health to implement a behavioral health model into our PCO platform. And that, and that model that they wanted us to use was something that was referred to as the hub. And it was developed up in Canada by law enforcement educators and medical professionals up there to provide a team approach, much like, much like we do on our substance use disorder side, and go out there and do a, you know, do a door knock to try to, you know, connect with people and connect them with the appropriate resources to deal not only with their mental health disorder, but the risk factors or social determinants that are generally associated with it. So someone could suffer from a mental health disorder, whether it be anxiety, depression, PTSD, bipolar syndrome, anything like that. But they, but if they also have, if they're homeless or they don't know where they're going to get their next meal or they're unemployed or they go home 
to someone that uses, you know, abuses alcohol, or maybe they suffer some kind of emotional abuse or something like that in the home, you know, they can go for their treatment, but it doesn't over, it doesn't affect their overall health if they have to go back and suffer from these other problems. And what the hub does is it brings together all the resources necessary to deal with these problems and create a team to provide a strategic intervention to deal with these situations. Well, now, how do we do it in 27 communities? Well, basically what we end up doing is we ended up setting up four regions. We have uh, four regions within the county that correspond with our court regions in the, in the, uh, in the Plymouth County court system. So we have a, um, a, uh, a Wareham region that meets on Tuesdays, a Plymouth region meets on Wednesdays, a Brockton meet region that meets on Thursdays, and a Hingham region that meets on Fridays. And prior to COVID, to getting back to your question, Chris, was we used to meet in person at a local police department within that region. And, um, and obviously when COVID struck and everything went into a shutdown, um, we couldn't go into the police departments to hell hold these meetings. So basically what it was was we used the, we used the Zoom process and we have these we have the Zoom meetings. And, um, and quite frankly, they, they, they worked very well because we have great attendance, um, you know, because people don't have to leave their office or leave their desk to, to attend the meeting. Um, you know, we've been able to uh, meet with people. We've been able to uh, connect people with resources. However, you know, it's primarily via telehealth um, as far as that goes. Um, and, you know, we, we hit some walls. Uh, we did kind of slow down a little bit, but it, we've we've kind of through through social media and through Zoom and through telehealth we've been able to continue connect people with resources and uh, we've been very successful uh, in doing that. Um, the the one thing that we do miss though, however, is the fact is a lot of people that suffer from mental health disorder um, they don't function real well remotely. You know, sometimes you need to be sitting across the table from someone or sitting next yeah. to them with that warm you know, handshake, you know, helping them fill out a form or helping them, you know, go online and register for a program or something like that. And that's, that's some, that's, those are places where we still kind of, um, we, 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 we we're missing, missing right now, you know, um, obviously, um, a lot of things have changed. A lot of our resource providers are now having, you know, face-to-face -face office hours. These things are expanding a little bit now, but now with, the COVID surge, you know, there's a possibility these things could be phased back. Um, John, lo looking forward um, with the PCO um, and the hub um, initiative, um, I'm just curious, you know, what, what's, what's going on internally in terms of goals, like over the next, let's say, you know, one to five years, um, what does the organization look to accomplish? Does it look to change anything within itself? And final part of the question is, uh, can the public help you at all? Can people donate or even contribute their time? Um, I would say yes. Um, I, I think the overall overall goal from the perspective of Hub, you know, um, PCO will continue to try to, you know, reduce the number of overdoses, you know, both non-fatal and fatal overdoses. But um, as far as Hub goes, uh, our main goal and, and main purpose is, is to reduce the number of calls that police departments respond to for mental health every day. Um, you know, we get a, you know, when people don't know who to turn to, they call the police. 
you know, and, you know, police officers. And again, you know, when I was, um, again, as I went into my retirement, I was seeing that the role of a police officer was changing significantly where we were doing about 70% human services work and 30% law enforcement. And even that has changed to like an 85%, 15%, you know, breakdown now. And, um, and again, I, I think you're going to continue to see that. I think you're going to see that through um, just through uh, social requirements or social needs and reform in general, that a lot of, you know, what police work is going to become is human services. And, um, you know, there's always going to be the law enforcement function out there, which, you know, is, is desperately needed, and we need to maintain that. And, um, but um, like you said, and, and as far as help from the public, um, yeah, we get, you know, any agency is out there is, is participating. You know, we have, we have substance use uh, disorder provide, uh, providers, we have mental health resources, we have food pantries, food banks, we have um, services for the elderly, we have our schools. Um, there's not, I don't think there's not one thing out there that we have not incorporated into our hub program to uh, connect, um, to try to connect people with services. And, um, you know, people, they, they just, they're there to help, you know, they, they, that's, that's their, that's their, their goal, that's their, uh, their function, and they want to go out there and help these people. And um, a lot of times I will get, um, you know, I might get an email midweek uh, from uh, someone from one of my hub tables, and we won't meet until the next, the next week. It'll be a full week, but they have something that needs some kind of immediate attention. I send an email out to my entire team, and by the end of the day, that person is connected with some sort of services to kind of take the edge off whatever their, their uh, crisis is at that time. So, um, you know, you know, the people, you know, people I'm working with in this are the best at what they do. And they really, uh, they're really trying to do their best to, to help these people that are really suffering. Thank you for listening. For more information about Beyond the Flock Media, check out our website, beyondtheflockmedia.com. Or you can catch the latest news and updates on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Until we meet again, don't forget to flock out!